Peace to the public. Power to the people. The vulnerable are powerful. And the most gangster thing you could do is serve. This is the All The Way Live podcast. Every week, my brother and Miles come here to welcome absolutely everybody that's watching. We see you in the comments. We are enjoying the conversations we get to have with people outside of the show. And we welcome you all to the All The Way Live podcast. What we do over here is present that carefully curated conversation for your cranium when we provide you with information based on anything dope, impact-related, art-related. And we do it for the sole purpose of being in space of positivity, man, because we know people are going through it. We know that people are suffering from loneliness. People are going through depression. People are really um, having a lot of weight on their shoulders, bro. So what we try and do at this show right here, man, is create a space where people can come through for positivity. And we do that through carefully curated conversation, man. And we love y'all. <laughs> Big facts. We love y'all, man. I love you, sir. I love each and every one of you out there, no matter whether y'all on your grind, whether you are on your commute, whether you are about to go on a jog, whether we're in your living room. Thank you for letting us be in your space. Uh, speaking of spaces, my brother means that Johannesburg is in the building, that South Africa is in the building by way of Exeter. You know what I'm saying? Appreciate you for, for coming here to be in conversation with us. My dude, my homie, my brother. Uh, and on this side, you know what's going on. Chicago is in the building. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. This land in Chicago was cared for by the Potawatomi people. The Council of the Three Fires and the violence done to remove them from this land is inseparable from the violence that we see in this country today, this world today, and in this city today, this city that I love, the space that I love. And I hope you love it too, man. I hope you come to love these spaces that we connect you with. We want to know what spaces y'all coming from, so make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe to this show. Sway, that's the end of the intro, what we got for them today. You know that the biggest and most important thing to us over here is highlighting people that are doing that good work. Miles and I are passionate about community work. Um, we're both deep within our respective and joint communities, trying to make sure that kids get food where they need it, people have shelter where they need it, um, the right type of resources are brought to the right type of people. And one thing that we always want to do with this platform is continue to highlight the people that are doing the good work. And we, this week, the particular impact highlight that we're doing, man, we got to share love to um, our very own Mandulo Foundation going through and putting together this incredible uh, piece, of, piece of empowerment conversation. Yes, sir, man. I am... So, so humbled and proud to be a part of this team, man. What's happening at Mandulo inspires me. Uh, it's a it's a space that I'm in that that motivates me just by seeing the other people that are in it and the amazing things, the amazing moves that are being made, right? So, uh, yeah, man, shout out to the ladies on this one, man. This was a celebration of Women's Month. Uh, I believe March is Women's Month this side in the, in the U.S., so as we close February, uh, this is more than appropriate, man, and I appreciate you for for bringing us this spotlight of our peoples, man. Look at that! Look at that, man. This conversation—you got to tune into this. We'll drop the link in the uh, in the description. Shout out to the YouTube audience checking out these clips. This is amazing. Indeed, indeed, and it was a powerful conversation between our CEO Namunda Gila and Candice Chirwa, who um, big props to her as well, man. She's a, a really a young lady that's taking a big stand in terms of being able to provide 
correct information around the female anatomy and uh, female empowerment through the right type of information, you know, we are, we know that in a lot of these communities, a lot of people aren't necessarily getting the right information in terms of how to handle a period. What does that mean? Female body development. There's a lot of information that has to be shared in order for uh, for for women to to be able to understand the changes that their bodies are going through and also what's right and what's wrong in terms of how they engage with people. So she's a big ambassador of that. And it was an absolute pleasure to have her uh, join us at the at our offices in Rosebank Gallery Momo and sit and, and have this wonderful conversation. Yeah, shout out Gallery Momo too, the space, man. It's, it's amazing we can make those connections to, uh, to community. Uh, one of the premier black galleries in South Africa, in the, in the world for real. So shout out Gallery Momo. Uh, shout out the Mandulo Foundation. We'll continue uh, through our work with Mandulo to to address food insecurity. Our laptop drive is ongoing, so if you if you can uh, contribute to that or know anybody who might want to contribute to that, uh, look in the description as well for our link to the Mandulo laptop drive. Uh, the impact continues. The work continues. The hustle continues for sure. Indeed, indeed. We got a whole show for these people that we done cooked up this whole week. Let's get into that. Yo, the kids official sliding on the instrumental Nordic combos, twisted mental like forbidden jitsu's my clips initial. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that, but is we live though? Is we like all the way live though? You heard? Hey, Zway. Is uh is Elon Musk a friend of the show? Elon Musk has we we've been known to cover a few of Elon Musk's. Uh, I don't want to call him shenanigans, but to be fair, he gives us a lot of content to be able to cover. That's right. He's a he's a person of interest for sure. We'll we'll label him that for now. Uh, and certainly making interesting moves. Uh, recent regulatory, administrative hoopla, some documents came out essentially that uh, disclose, or that maybe Elon Musk wanted to disclose, $6 billion worth of Tesla shares uh, that went to charity last year. Woo! Six billion, $6 billion in Tesla shares, right? That is a lot. That is a lot. And if that number sounds familiar... Right. I think we may have even talked about it on the show is because late last year, Elon Musk was talking mad spicy on Twitter. Right. <laughs> uh, regarding regarding uh, food insecurity and and being asked to, as a billionaire, contribute to food insecurity across the world. And he made a tweet essentially saying, right, that uh, if he if somebody put forth a plan that uh, disclosed how he could spend $6 billion to, to solve food insecurity, that he would willingly contribute that amount, right? Definitely. And we remember when that story came out, it was it, it was a, a fun Twitter exchange where he pretty much just put the, he pretty much on Twitter was just like, listen, I got $6 billion right now to solve the problem. What you got? And there was a back and forth that was happening between um, the word, the World Food Program, and the leader of the World Food Program, who was saying essentially, "Hey, Musk, hit us up and we can talk." With Elon Musk responding, "Now, nah, put it, put it in the links, put it out loud. I want to see this plan and make it make sense." Um, and from that, from that point, things kind of got a little bit quiet. 
So it would be a safe assumption to assume to some extent that this has something to have to do with that exchange to, to a certain extent. Um, $5.5 billion, that's a lot of money uh, to solve the problem. I'd be interested to really see what type of steps that looks like. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see the steps. And it was I was glad to see, like, the World Food Program respond with that extensive and detailed plan, right? Which doesn't surprise me. The folks that work at nonprofits are uh, they're, they're incredible people. They're they're ferocious and tenacious when it comes to the issues that they want to address and, and serve. So um, I'm I imagine that many other programs too heard that Elon Musk maybe had some money out there to donate and offered up and outlined some programs right that could that could address food insecurity. Um, but it's interesting. I don't I don't know. Do we know for sure that this that that's what this money has been going to? As far as I as far as I saw, right. It was some tax documents that said he made a contribution, a charitable contribution of $5.6 billion. Um, but the the World Food Program has said, maybe coyly, maybe they're just not releasing it yet, but they're saying they haven't received a check from Musk yet. Uh, they said, Ooh, spicy. Well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it's on the way. It certainly would seem to make sense and fit, but they said whether WFP receives any of Musk's $5.6 billion it's yet to be seen, but they're excited to hear that Musk that is uh, that he's engaged, right? So take that to me you, if you want to. You know, over here we subscribe to the notion that there's no minimum amount of help that one can give when it's when it comes to helping other people, right? So no amount is too little in that sense. So definitely, um, six five point five billion dollars going towards ending food hunger is a substantial contribution the question then comes into play though is can this 5.5 billion actually solve world hunger which then brings us to the question of looking at what are the causes of world hunger well there are there's a whole bunch of causes to world hunger right uh, but a big part of this plan and what's outlined by the world food program is that this this plan isn't to end world hunger right and typically uh, when you get serious about a big issues like this, it tends not to be that simple. So what they've outlined is a way to address 42 million people that are at the highest risk for food insecurity, putting them in danger of death, right? So essentially, they're trying to save 42 million lives. Those folks that they that they are able to assess that are on the brink of their food insecurity, putting them in danger to die. And they're assessing those across a variety of countries, right? So the World Food Program uh, plan, which we could also drop in the description. I know we've got that on hand, too. I was checking that out. Kind of lists the countries um, that they plan to address. A lot of them, uh, some of them in East Africa, some of them uh, in in Asia. And just kind of laying out the ways, how the money will be allocated across each of those countries and how many lives will be saved in each country. Uh, so it's actually, I mean, it's... It's a lot of people when you bring it back to a human-centric point, um, but it's also like, will they be able to, how effective will they be able to do this plan? And if this money has been received, how long will it take? That remains to be seen. So what makes the world hunger issue so particular in, in, in what it is is the fact that it's not a case where there is not enough food in order to feed people. Right. We know that there is a surplus of food that's actually being created, um, sometimes even in the countries of the places where people are starving. That particular cause of world hunger usually is related to pol political 
issues, uh, political issues that might stem from some of the laws that the governing countries are imposing on particular farmers or the type of agricultural goods that they choose to focus on as an economy. Um, also, co war and conflict, that's also one of the issues that, you know, that lead to that leads to world hunger. And then a smaller percentage of that comes down to climate change and um, just outright uh, poverty, outright super poverty. So the issue isn't necessarily the fact that there isn't enough food to be made, but in order to really, uh, to, to really get to the heart of it, you need to jump over political considerations, right? Because there's going to be uh, the, the place with the highest place with the highest concentration of starving people is the DRC at the moment, right? In middle, middle Africa, essentially, in Central Africa, the DRC. And in that particular, con uh, in that particular area, what's happening is that the particular types of foods that the government is giving incentives for farmers to produce just do not happen to be the same type of consumable goods that would nourish the population. So essentially the people there are just farming in order for that food to be exported out as opposed to going into that community. And in there lies some of the nuance and the trick and the nuance and the difficulty of approaching the world hunger situation. Yeah. And I think that's, I think because so many of those agricultural uh, businesses underpin governments, underpin economies in those places, right? You're looking at a much bigger contribution than $5 billion to be able to restructure those agricultural initiatives towards really serving the people in those places and addressing their immediate food needs. Um, so I think we're talking about answers to a problem that address the people that are the most at risk right now versus structural fixes to really address how the issue can be solved across the globe with like sustainability for the foreseeable future, right? Uh, and so it's going to take, I don't know, maybe more billionaires? I don't know, maybe, but a, a greater focus on this issue to really get at the ways that countries and societies and entire economies are based on the agricultural practices you just described. Um, I think the real lesson for me in this is that uh, Twitter is real, man. So when this when this story first came out, I was looking at this like, I was critical from the perspective of, it didn't seem like um, there was a. There, I didn't. I didn't seem genuine, right? The call to say, you know, six billion dollars. You know, if you show it to me on this Twitter stream, his actual quote was like, "If you can describe on this Twitter thread how exactly six billion dollars will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it." Uh, and to me, that didn't seem like a, a genuine call for to address this problem. Um, and in the fashion that a nonprofit should, right? The the World Food Program created an entire outline, didn't respond in the Twitter thread. They they posted this entire outline to the Twitter thread and hopefully were able to at least charge Musk to um, pay greater attention to this issue. To me, I'm left thinking Twitter is the real streets, right? Like I'm thinking this is billionaires playing with politicians, right? And this is not the arena for this to really be carried out, right? But that's the that's where we're at now right and that's yeah. what, me is that's both scary and and also like i don't know man as we move into this new world where where social media is is reality like we got to pay close attention to this like we're talking like this entire story really basically plays out in tweets and that's that's new for me for something that needs to be taken so seriously considering how many people it could potentially help
right? And also, how many people this like you jerking the chain of if you playing with those lives, right? If you if you really are just playing. So this is yeah. this is an interesting story for that reason, I think. Even even just looking at the World Food Program, they have fifteen thousand employees, right? So the World Food Program essentially is. At, at, at its core, a logistics company. It's a logistics organization that has a vast network with the ability to reach some pretty remote lands using their, their type of um, local network situ- local network solution, right? So even in terms of even in terms of the 5.5 billion and what it means in the hands of the World Food Program, and this is also some of the uh, the criticism that they got where people are just like, oh, it's going to be another Red Cross, which is something that people like to refer to a lot in terms of organizations that allegedly chow investment money and they and they look at the World Food Program in the same way. Now, it would be particularly difficult to really take all these large organizations and break them down to their core and see how efficient they're being with the money that they're taking in. But it shouldn't be lost that these guys are still helping, right? These guys are actually still putting boots on the road where it matters, and they're trying to get to those remote places where people don't have food and provide that food to them. So it's it's always easy to look at these to look at these types of solutions and be like, yeah, but I bet you they're gonna, uh, I bet you two billion of that is gonna, you know, they're gonna spend two billion of that. But it, look, there might not be a perfect way to go forward in terms of how companies are put together, but definitely shout out to the people that are making the difference like the World Food Program. Big facts, big facts. And keeping in mind that they say they haven't received a check yet, right? I hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I, mean? I hope they haven't made any orders. <laughs> yeah, but but just like you said, they are in a position to carry this out in, in a way um, logistically that puts them, right? Like, if they didn't receive it from us, they need to receive it from somewhere, right? This this type of money is is kind of play money to them, right? This same $5.6 billion t- Tesla lost or Elon Musk lost the same amount of money in Tesla stock when a Tesla crashed right last April. So, and on a good week in October, he made $13 billion just off the value of his stock. So $5.6 billion is not a lot of money for people like Elon Musk for, for Bill Gates and them to, to throw around. Right. So we need to continue to encourage this type of, of serious philanthropy. And these are the type of numbers we need to be keeping in consideration when we talk about these world problems like food insecurity, right? Like youth violence and gun violence, like gender-based violence, like housing insecurity. We talk in billions, right? We talk in bees, right? So let's talk bees then. We have some comments coming in through, man. And shout out to Funny for putting in the comments and being a part of this conversation. You know, we encourage that to the highest extent. This is not a closed conversation. This is an open conversation. What people are saying is, how will Daguala break down an industry? Will it be assets to industries? These are very technical questions, man. Super, super technical things. Do you think charities need to be awarded funds by a grading scheme? Because too much Guala in one organization does run wild yes sir yo you want to take that first one i'll take the second one right quick um <laughs> for sure for sure i mean how will the money break down in, in break down in industry will assets will it be assets to industry so again when looking at the heart of the issue of global hunger we're seeing that it's not a institute it's not a infrastructure issue it's a institutional issue a lot of the times so what makes it complicated is that when you give the cash to say 
the governments of the countries where these things are happening, uh, that money disappears a whole lot quicker. So then the question becomes, who do you give this cash to so that it can make its way in where it's supposed to where it's supposed to make it? And what would actually be able to help is if the money was able to go into agriculture industries and be able to um, be able to incentivize farmers to be to grow products like simple products that they could sell onto the markets instead of products that are solely focused on export. Yeah. And I think that starts to get at the second question, right? Which is like, do charities need to be awarded funds by a grading scheme? I think it's like when you say charities, I think it needs to be more than one organization. I think it needs to be collectives of organizations, right? The current ways that funding and philanthropy is set up is it sets a lot of organizations up to have to compete with each other to get funds and to receive funds. And that's that antagonistic setup makes it less just efficient to to make things shake in, in these communities. So I think there needs to be a push to make sure that when as you award these funds, they should be awarded to collectives that represent local farmers, right, that have people that are stakeholders in these communities that I'm sure you can find people that have been doing work around agricultural agricultural equity and then even zoning appropriate land usage for space to keep in mind communities that have an existing investment in these spaces, right? So make sure, basically what I'm saying is make sure everybody who needs to be at the table is at the table, including community, including the people that typically get messed over in these situations. Make that a, like a, and a requirement of getting, receiving any of this funding. And then you'll see that money spread out and goes where it needs to be, goes where it needs to, and eliminate a little bit of space for corruption. When, you know, the question of do charities need to be awarded funds by a grading scheme, that's, that is how the grant system works, right? In the grant system, and Miles, you're an expert on this, on applying for grants, but my understanding is you are weighted to a certain extent based on some qualifications, history, um, awards, or certifications. Absolutely. But also what needs to be mentioned is that is like equity of the ability to apply, right? So you have a lot of organizations, especially small group grassroots organizations that are doing incredible work, but really only have the capacity to do the work that they're doing and not to devote entire teams and staff members to applying to grants, right? Which is how you, how you really receive like big amounts of money there. There's, there's a rigorous process. And unless you have the time and the money to, and the human capital the people with experience in writing grants to devote to this, it's very difficult to receive them. So of course there needs to be some type of criteria, but we also need to make sure that there's an ample amount of time an ample amount of awareness and an ample amount of resources, workshops to help folks, especially that have been doing this work, but maybe only the work and not the administrative financial have struggled with fundraising, give them access to the ability to build their capacity to receive these things as well. But yes, there definitely needs to be a, a strict criteria that includes how that money is going to be spent, who's at the table in this agreement, uh, how there will be checks and balances to ensure that the priorities laid out in the application for the grant are actually carried out uh, after the money is received. I believe that right there concludes our particular segment, Miles Xavier. We love it when people are contributing to the show. This is, as always, an open conversation. And we have a whole nother section of some whole more content, man.
Yeah, take it away. Mr. Miles Xavier. Yeah. Over the week, uh, one of our favorite comedians, and uh, let me say my favorite comedian because I don't know who your favorite comedian, but one of my favorite comedians about call up in the scandal of sorts. My favorite comedian is Bernie Mac, although I do love <laughs> how fluffy live. it looks in this picture. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that jacket does not look that jacket. I don't. That's not fair, dude. I don't know what he's holding in those pockets, but that's not fair. That's not how big my guy is. Oh man, comedic genius. Or <laughs> either way, either way, nah, man. That's that's a funny picture, but my man looks good, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But go ahead, just go to ahead. Get deep, just to get deep into this conversation, I don't know if you saw the video, but particularly speaking, I'm Dej Paul speaking at a at a town at a community hall meeting regarding the development of what was incorrectly labeled as low-income household, and the video went viral. Dave Chappelle covered it numerous times on this particular show, one of our favorite artists. Um, and, or, you know, it, low-income households, the, 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 the title is juicy and scandalous. You know, it, it, it's, it looks like there's an agenda behind the title. What did you take from it? I'll, be, I'll keep it real and say, when I first saw it, I was scandalized. Right. When I first saw it, because here's the thing, right? I think Dave Chappelle, as the guy who turned down $50 million, at one point had this cachet with the public, the general public, and even the black public, which is it's hard to get cachet with the black public. But Dave Chappelle had cachet even with the black public to say, like, no matter what happens, no matter what headline I read, I believe that Dave Chappelle is on the side of the people. Right. Dave Chappelle had the benefit of the doubt of the people for a little while. And I think that's coming to question, right? Uh, the just, just the general question of whether Dave Chappelle represents is on the side of the little guy or is on Dave Chappelle on the side of, you know, he he's reached a certain point where, uh, for lack of a better term, there's a Kanye-ish tint to the things where it's like, hey, look, I'm here. Mm -hmm. I'm I say this. This is what this is what shakes, right? I think that's just coming to question. Do you agree? Or disagree, whether it's not you, either side. You seeing a bit of Kanye and Dave Chappelle? Is that what you're saying, Miles Xavier? I'm I'm just trying. I'm just reaching for a way to describe how this person. I think at one point everybody was like, "He's with us. He represents the people and our our the feelings, especially the hurt feelings that we feel that don't get to be voiced." And comedy is an incredible vessel for that, and he's been an incredible vessel for an entire community's voice, right? And then there's a shift to where that community may or just questions whether that person represents them, right? So why it would seem like a an infringement on the people, so to speak, is because it was labeled as low-income housing, which would imply that Dave Chappelle is not for low-income housing in his community, especially in the nature when you when you've seen this particular clip in hand, where he's like, "I'm offended, y'all look like fools," you know, talking this talk. And quite frankly, I'm not mad at it. I'm I'm not mad at somebody 
being able to talk, they talk because I feel like sometimes the only way to get people to listen to you is if you if you if you speak if you speak surprisingly direct towards them, you know, being completely real without the facade of the suits, without the facade of anything else. And I couldn't imagine this was the first time they had had this conversation, especially because he calls out the city council by name who's sitting on that on that board. You know, he goes, you got my number, let's talk. Like, why are we at this point? You know, so it does seem like there was a bit of a frustration in there. Um, it, it's also, it, it could be just the... It, it could be the the development people playing games, man. That's a that's a part of the game when it comes to these development companies. There's media and marketing that goes behind it. There's false labeling that goes behind it. There's a whole bunch of trickery. Big facts, big facts. So I appreciate you bringing in some of the the complexity to the situation, right? It's certainly not as simple as a uh, big millionaire Dave Chappelle says no to po people moving into his community. Um, it's honestly like when you look at Yellow Springs and when you like kind of do a little research into the community, you realize that it is like super small town and it's to the extent that it's very much trying to preserve a very small town feel, right? It's got a little neighborhood newspaper, right? It's a very, and, and so even any type of development, even something like a, um, low income housing or like, which whether this was that, what was being proposed is that, is also in question, right? But any type of development is looked at with scrutiny and how it's going to affect kind of the the vibe of the, the neighborhood. Because you have people that have lived there for a long time. The average age of the town is 49, right? Uh, that are invested in the vibe of the community. Now, that can be that can be good and bad. And, you know, we can talk about the, the need for change and development. But at the same time, man... Um, it's simply not as simple as them just saying, we don't want no poor people here. Um, yeah, it's deeper than that. And part of the big fear that comes with part of the big fear that comes with the housing market, especially right now is the fact that prices are soaring through the roof. Prices of houses are going through the roof. And a lot of times it's a, it's a real odd type of gentrification. Now that's happening. Not so much where the community is changing, but just the prices are driving people out of that community. Um, you've seen it. They what they've called the what they've called the 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 Zoom the Zoom generation. So once COVID hit and a lot of people were then able to stay at home and be able to re- work remotely from home, they realized, oh man, I hate being in this cooped up place in New York. I'll probably take this cash and go somewhere nice and quiet and just work from there. And now there's these you know there's a big flood into these sleepy town markets if you will, and people are just moving in there at a pace and then increasing the value of it, um, increasing the value so that the inhabitants of that place won't be able to afford it anymore. So that that also comes into play when you think about these large development plans that could come into, uh, like, you know, Dave Chappelle could be talking against. Right. And I'm glad that, yeah, there's a... This seems like a a good time for us to kind of get into like what does low income housing mean, right? And and like you're kind of towing, you're getting into gentrification, right? And why that's an issue. These are like buzzwords that I feel like people hear a lot. Um, so we can break some of them down real quick. Like low income housing is essentially uh, you look at the median average of how much people make in a given area, right? So take take a community how much what's the average income for the households right you set that at okay that's the average 
whoever makes 80% or less than that, that's low income, right? Affordable housing, the, the thought is, the, the number that is used by the government in a lot of their kind of scaffolding for the programs is if you make, if housing costs 30% uh, or less of your, of your income, then it's affordable, right? So you take a look at, all right, who's low income? They make 80% of average, right? And then you take, if their housing costs more than a third of their income, right, then it's, then it's not affordable. So let me give you some numbers, right? Yeah, I was going to say, break that, break that down a little more simple. I'm trying to focus. You say 80%, 30%, 50% of 20%. Check this out, right? If I make $50,000, right? I like that simple numbers. My bad, my bad. My bad. If the average, these numbers I can count on one hand. I got you. All right. We go get ready with your five. Get your five hand out. All right, I got my five up. Y'all too, blue schools. All right. So <laughs> if the average uh income in a community is fifty thousand dollars, right? Then if I make eighty percent of that, which is forty thousand dollars or less, I'm considered low income. If I make eighty percent or less than average, so if the okay. average is fifty and I make 40 or less, I'm considered low income. Now, affordable housing is considered if it's 30% or less of my income. So for if I make $40,000, that means I should be able to find housing for $12,000 a year, 30% of my income, I should be able to find housing for $12,000 a year or less, right? So if you break down 12,000 for a year, 12,000, 12 months, that's $1,000 a month, right? So mm -hmm. if the average income in my community is $50,000, I should be able to find, and, and I make, and the low income is set at $40,000 or less, I should be able to find a house for, or, or a dwelling rent for $1,000 a month or less, right? Or less, because that's $40,000 is that 80%. So people make less than 80% of average, but that's the simple yeah. And so even the term affordable housing becomes more complicated because there's a range in terms of what people can afford. You can be on the upper edge of that 80% and right on that $1,000 housing per month, or you can be way less than that and then, you know, really be outpriced, which is actually something that's happening a lot in London. It's something that's happening a lot in San Francisco. It's something that's happening a lot in uh, New York as well, where people are really are being outpriced by the homes in their neighborhoods. It's happening here in Chicago, for show. Um, I live in South Show, right? Which is on the South side. Um, it's kind of like the Northeast part, if you consider how deep the South side goes. It's the Northeast part of the South side, right? Uh, and that's very close to where the Obamas are building their, their library. The Obama library is going up in uh, Jackson Park, essentially. Uh, which is, you know, situated near Hyde Park, near the University of Chicago, near South Shore, but actually directly to the west of kind of South Shore and the university's kind of southernmost touches is Inglewood, right? So this is a very mixed community. And the introduction of the Obama Library that's going, that's going to be here on the south side amidst these communities, uh, people are worried that that coming here means the university is going to expand and take up land. The Obama Foundation will continue to expand and take up land. And having something, an attraction that big will mean that rents will go up and that people who've lived on the South Side, right, where Obama's from, right, uh, will no longer be able to afford to live there. 
But what it's kind of double edged because also what you want as a homeowner in that space, especially for preaching things like um, buy your buy your neighborhood and buy your block, then that would be a blessing to you. You would be like, oh, thank you, God. This is incredible. I've been. This is clearly. Won't he do it? You know, it could be that type of situation. But then it's, you're right. Some people in that same area might not be able to afford living in that area. So which, where do we put the weight of the positive? Is, is, is that a positive thing or a negative thing? Well, there's a lot of things to consider, right? And whether it's a positive or negative thing, I think depends on your perspective and your, uh, your prospects as far as investment, right? If you have squirreled away a little cash and you've got something to spend on a property, on a business, right in that area or if you or if you own a business in that area and financially you're super solvent and you're good and you know you're going to be there that's great right but there's also people that are struggling to pay their rent now and so the people that have consistently lived in a lot of these communities especially on the south side right for years and have made them into the communities they're remembered as the communities that it makes a difference that obama's from right people think of that because of the demographic of community, because it's a black community and everything that that means, the soul that that means, the, the adversity that that means, right? And so when you think about not a lot, when you think about taking that, whatever has attracted people to this community and now pushing out the people who have made it that, right? That's where you run into an issue. So yeah, so sure, like there's, there's, a great opportunity for investment, but how are we going to make sure that those people get a piece of the pie too? Those people that you've excluded, right, by not investing in these communities until until now, until it's gentrification time, how do you make sure that they get something? That's where things like rent control come in. That's where inclusionary zoning ordinances come in. There's a lot of tools. Ooh, big words. Oh, hey, hey, hey. But but we can break them all down. We can break them all down, right? Like rent control, simple. You set a cap at how much you can charge for rent in this area, which means that people who have historically lived here and who paid a certain amount of rent, just because you build big and fancy things, they'll still be able to live here. A certain number of the homes in this in this area will still be designated to be only charged this amount of rent so that people who can only pay that amount of rent can still be a part of this community, even as you yeah. better Right. I don't know if there's a gentrification tax that exists, but something like that in terms and going specifically towards like the the heart of the issues in that community, which would probably be dilapidated schooling system, pay and make sure that the kids that were in that community have better access to getting into that, getting into those schools, increase the pay of those teachers, increase the, the, the type of computer labs that they have, that type of thing. In the oil and gas world, they call that local content, right? Where it's like a law stipulated that a percentage of every single barrel has to go towards impacting positively the country that the oil is being pulled from. So a gentrification tax of that sort would be dope. Yeah, but a big part of the issue is keeping people um, in those communities long enough to see the prosperity that comes from the change, right? Unfortunately, here in Chicago the school system is funded by property tax, right? So until they gentrify, move everybody out, put up a whole bunch of high rises and raise the value of the property, right? The schools don't get better. So how do we, like you said, right? How do we make sure that in that process of 
these developers, whoever they may be coming into the space, the people have a say in making demands of things that won't change, making demands of parts of their community that will not be touched. And that includes residents and that includes creating affordable housing opportunities for residents. Right. And so it's complex, man. I don't want to make it seem like it's easy. I don't want to make it seem like anybody's on the on the wrong side of this thing because real estate itself is complex. But uh, at the at the end of the day, man, you 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 got to always consider like your people. Not everybody's at the table automatically. People with money are at the table automatically. People with influence are at the table automatically, right? And everybody else that doesn't have money and influence often gets swept along. So when you talk about an opportunity in any given space, you got to think about the people that you need to be intentional about bringing to the table. Because if you don't bring them to the table, one, you lost all the soul of the community, and it's only going to get cool somewhere else. And and you and two, you're you're going to be on the wrong side of history for having moved those people out, only wanting to take up what you thought was valuable in that space. You heard it here first. Where else can you go to get a breakdown of affordable housing, breakdown of all sorts of inclusionary zoning information for your content? People have shown us that they love a particular part of the show more than any other part of the show, Miles Xavier. And that's the part of the show that we're going to get into now. I get that, I get that, but is we live though? Is we like all the way live though? You heard? Yo, I can't, I couldn't, I could never enough, right? I could never make it seem special as it is for us to review Crit. Yo, man. The cool thing about having your own show is that you get to give out the props that you've never had the chance to be able to give out. You get to say something into the ether in the direction of people that you respect. And what I want to do is use our platform to thank Big Crit, man. Thank Big Crit. Crit has been medicine. Crit has been... Chris music is truly that 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 music that you use to get through and he's so intentional about making sure that his music is exactly like that and we've watched crit grow for for such a long time and if this episode is about anything it's about thanking crit as somebody who his music has continuously been able to lift up even again this weekend again man shout out to crit one of the most consistent in the game big facts man big facts Digital Flowers Never Die is a is a great addition to a catalog that, as you said, man, has just been um, healing to a brother, you know. Um, and Chris, an artist that I, you know, I always try to go into anything we listen to without expectations. But with Crit, your expectations are useless, like utterly, like you know, you can have whatever you can have, but. He he he's always reaching for something greater, always reaching for something original. Um, and while there's things that I can compare uh, Digital Roses Don't Die to, there's a it's 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 a great contribution to music right now. Um, and I and I hope that we hear more. Like <laughs> Crick can do whatever he wants after this, for sure. To me, 
and I think what you're reaching to is that he is experimental, right? From the sounds that he was using, um, from King Remembered in Time, even before that, that Saturday celebration track, which, you know, he always strives to create a, a very... The, the, the crit formula in that album is this. You're going to get a, a, a sub song, sometimes titled sub or subwoofer <laughs> you know the sub series yeah. uh, you're gonna get something for the sound it's, it's made to bang in your speakers you're gonna get a ballad of sorts you're gonna get an epic song then you're gonna get some love songs right and a whole lot of creativity and i think in that formula especially starting from dare i say it was better this way where that type of formula started kicking in um, obviously hitting the epitome, I think, when he dropped the 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 double disc. Forever is a mighty long time. Forever is a mighty long time. And I appreciate you bringing the discography of this man into the conversation, right? This is somebody who we've seen on a trajectory up, right? We see him come into the game, putting out the type of music that immediately put him in the conversation with people that we see uh running the mainstream now right j cole drake kendrick um but we've seen a, a choice both in his own production and in maybe maybe even uh truth in his own music of the way that southern artists are sometimes pigeonholed right and put in a certain boxing category um but we've seen him just continue to let the music speak for himself so from everything from catalactica which i think represents how he came into the game and 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 who he was and and his persona um as a as a rap artist in that space two things like forever which is a mighty long time uh which is like almost his beautiful dark twisted fantasy right this this uh beautiful capsule of what he's able to do when an artist does a double disc you know it's serious um so the first half right the the Justin Scott and the big crit, the just the duality of making, being able to rap, being able to put down lyrics in a way that not a lot of artists can, being able to put together words in a way that uh, just and kill beats in a way that not a lot of rappers can, but also to be able to construct beats and craft masterpieces. Um, this yeah. is, he's dynamic, bro. He's super dynamic. He's super dynamic, and we keep going back to that. Forever is a mighty long time because since that. Since that came out, I think the confidence level that we've seen of Crit has elevated, right? In terms of being like, all right, cool, I've given you now a double disc of what you want. You want the front side where it's straight up uh what you love about Crit, all those slappers, all those subplays, or do you like the do you like the uh the the dreams esque type side of it where we're diving deep into who he is as an artist using uh, samples and features from Jill Scott and Robert Glasper and being real dynamic with the sound, right? And since then, he came out, he was like, I, not that I've been able to do that, I'm just straight up going to be able to put out the type of music that I want to put out. Saw that with Critters here, um, intentionally uh, intentionally crafted, coming out with a statement. I feel like from Critters here, getting into uh, Digital Roses Never Die, it definitely is a more toned-down version of the crit was in, you know, crit is here, was establishing that he's here, but then with uh, Digital Roses, I think he took a lot more risks in terms of the sounds that he was able to to put out. And a lot of times those risks don't always sit well with people. How did those risks, in terms of the, the, the new sound that crit was trying to experiment with, some come off to you? 
you know, when I first heard it, I was um I was like, yo, I was along for the ride, right? Like, cool. Artsy interlude to start it off. That sets the mood right there. I know we're not really into some we're not going into something that's gonna be super like rapidy rap heavy, right? That's not his he's not trying to prove anything about his rapping ability on this record. Cool. Interlude was a good way to like let us in, right? South Side of the Moon. Anything with Southside in the title got me hooked. So like that's kind of unfair. But I rock with it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great song and, and definitely one of my highlights, right? Um Show You Right isn't one of my favorite songs on the album, but it fits here and it and it continues to let you know that this that this album is gonna be about um it's not gonna isn't has no interest in staying within what's clearly defined as hip hop. And it's just gonna allow the point of the story to tell to tell itself and to dictate what type of sonics you're going to hear. So for, I think from track three, I started to look for like, all right, what is he going for here? What's the theme, right? Now that I knew kind of what we were going to get, I was looking for it. And it's love, man. And and to me, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Definitely with Crit, a lot, a lot of the sound experimentation that he utilizes is what repels people away. And I think at times has been the reason why he's not featured on the top conversations list. Like, as you had mentioned, um, the Kendricks, the Coles, the Drakes, because there was a particular point in time where all of those people were on the same level. We're talking now 2014, 2013, where you had the conversation was Crit, Cole, uh, Kendrick and Drake, and who would em- emerge from those as as the front run? Obviously, Drake was leading at that moment, but it was a lot closer. And for some reason, it does seem as though Crip might have kind of taken, and, and this might be from public perspective, a step back from that lane, and is no longer considered in that conversation. And it was cool to see him address that in um, in in his songs, where he's saying you, uh, South Side of uh, South Side of Town, where he's like, you know. It's cool they don't say my name. I'll, I'll smile in these mansions because he is a very accomplished artist and deserves to be compared to 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 those guys. Yeah, we have a couple of weeks running talking about artists who've carved out like a comfortable space, um, not in the direct spotlight of the mainstream with Cousin Stiz, with Yo Gotti, right? Like these are artists that are successful and, and comfortable and not having to be the guy that's on the tip of everybody's tongue, right? Crit is so comfortable in that that he's getting way left with it, right? He's going from being comparable to some of those guys to like, you know what this album reminded me of, bro? Was uh, Tetsuo and Youth. This reminds oh, me wow. of Lupe. You got the same interludes, you know, not the same, but like, all right, fire, wind, all right, spring, summer, um, some incredible displays of lyrical ability, but not over typical beats, right? He's He's swinging to be put in another class, right? And if Big Crit continues to make music the way he's making it, he's going to be one of the the black thoughts. As we get older, some of the guys that are still appearing on some of the classier, more classic sounding tracks, right? Because he's just so versatile and his music is maturing in a, in a dope way. I will say that the risk that he took on this album so happened to be some of my favorite risks that he has taken. Um, some of the songs that I would have expected to like, I I wouldn't completely say uh, resonated with me as much as Crit is here. So in terms of where I would rank this in in in, in Crit's cat- uh, discography, which is another thing, Crit has a a very well-rounded discography. It is 
it is so tough to 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 rank Crit's discography. Crit can stand there with a lot of people in terms of the quality of the albums that he's done. Um, and if I think about it, like you said, if I were to be a rapper, the rapper I'd want to be is Big Crit. I think I'd want to be Big Crit because you have the you you've earned the respect of being able to experiment as much as you can. You are respected by your peers. You have a following that is always going to be able to support you. And you can be as as music, and you are a producer on one side, a, di- a director on, on one side, respected as an artist. I think Crit might have the most comfortable place in hip hop. I I I love that choice, man. And especially as somebody who, from a creative perspective, seems like he's in a pocket where he can take that feeling and make the beat and make the uh the lyrics right. And when you're able to express yourself like that. You're in an incredible space. So, man, uh, give some more highlights of this album, man. I would say that uh, South Side of the Moon, Road Clean, those are my top two from, like, that kind of first segment. I was all right on um, kind of Between Earth and Water. I was like, ah, that's those those tracks are cool. So Cool is really dope. I really like that. Uh, Just For You is, is, is definitely, like, it's decent. But it's really the tracks from Water to Wind that boring, that would it matter, that generational way down, that generational way down, boy. Woo, that man's getting into some serious topics right there. When, uh-huh. That's, that's mature music right there, man. So I really, that's that's my stretch. Boring, would it matter, generational way down. Um, then, you know, some of the tracks at the end, all the time, that's dope. But man, this is, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Interesting, man. Interesting. My stretch, I would say, is that it's over now. Uh, the wet lashes and shot glasses, that to me is has one of the best switch-ups that you'll hear, man. That shit slaps so hard all the, all the time. Super, super strong as well. South Side of the Moon. The, the, I'm not going to lie, there's some love songs in here that were that are beautiful and melodic and maybe, you know, given the right circumstances, would resonate a little bit differently. But it does have less technical slappers, but that South Side of the Moon is a standout track. If you like hip-hop, you're going to love that song. All the time, it's epic. Um, wet lashes and shot glasses, epic too. Um, all around, all around, uh, an enjoyable listen. Mature hip hop. You gotta love that. That mature hip hop. So let me ask you this, right? Where are some of the environments? Because as I was listening to this, I was like, some of this music I really, really like, but it's not um, for everywhere, right? Where are some of the places and spaces you hear yourself listening to this in the future? Chris best heard in a car, bro. You know that Chris. Chris- is best heard in a in the sound system, and I feel like he intend intentionally um, creates songs like uh, like albums based like that. The My Sub series is just that. It's literally six My Sub songs of just straight sub play. You if you have a subwoofer, you just turn that up to the loudest, and you just hear him flexing with that bass play, which is always dope. So that's the best place to hear. Um, that's the best place to hear crit. I hear that. I hear that. The car for sure can't overlook that for crit. Um, but I'm hearing a lot of kickback music in this, man. And you know, there's there's something about like hip hop fans, a lot of times, no matter who the artist is, we want some rapidy rap stuff. But we've gotten some amazing albums, I would say in the last six to eight months, um, that complement this one. I'ma definitely be playing this all mixed up with Saba's album, all mixed up with uh Mick Jenkins album, all mixed up with Corday's album. 
we're getting some very mature uh you know like yeah what like chill vibey but like meaningful music man this is this is there this is the incense burning vinyl turning this is that. This is soulful to me. This is uh, Afros and Dashikis and all that warm, beautiful. <laughs> we call this that get by music, man. This is that get by music. And crit doesn't crit music doesn't live too far away from cold music in my in, in my rotation. And I tend to because I've discovered both artists around the same time. Um, I enjoy both of those artists in the same way. Definitely something that's worth a listen. I enjoy it. Y'all guys will let us know what music y'all enjoy in the comments section. People are talking, <laughs> love songs are for the baby. I talk about some playlists that, that are being made. And speaking of which, we do drop playlists every single Wednesday on the SoundCloud list because we're giving people that content, Miles. Big facts. That's what we do, man. The other thing we do is rate albums. We can't get out of here without blessing this one. I'm at like a four. I'm at like a four. Four five with this one. What you where you at with this one? I'm down to settle out of four. I'm down to settle out of four out of five mics. Um doesn't it doesn't top the doesn't top our our album of the year so far, but as a crit fan, we saw Crit Live last year and in twenty nineteen, which was the last live show that we went to. I was with you, my brother, we went to go see Crit Live for the second time. It is always a spiritual experience. I can't wait to hear this album live as well, because we definitely gonna go. Big facts, big facts. Pull up. Uh, man, yo, I love I love doing this part of the show. I love recommending and review. This is also low-key our time to call out to artists who we are scared have gone missing and we need more music from. This album right here made me wonder, where is Sahada Prince? And I need mm. to speak to him immediately about his raps because I need more of them, right? Sahada Prince, we're looking at you and we'd be remiss if we didn't look directly at this camera and say... Kendrick, where are you? Right. Kendrick, where are you? This is enough now. You this know, is enough now. Big facts. Miss well, me bad. <laughs> big facts. Yo, I'm glad the show, man, sticks to its roots, right? This whole thing is really an excuse, right, to call out to, to the artists that we need more music from. Uh, so with that, we will appreciate you all for, for tuning in, for sticking with us. If you are here at the end of the show hearing the soulful sounds of uh chestnut tones that's my brother you right and hello tones that's me over here uh this is a celebration of celebrating this is a celebration of life this is a celebration of love this is a celebration of how good it feels to be black don't it feel good way i love it, man yep we hope it feels good to be you wherever you are you know what i'm saying in your crib or your car right in your shower or rush hour, wherever you at, on the mat, we got your back. You know what I'm saying? This is all the time. Yeah, yeah. Back to the roots. Hip-hop. Yo, raise Hip-hop. yo, yo, eat something delicious. Hug somebody you love, man. Life is short. Life is short. Smoke them if you got them. Post something up. We out of this mug. All the way live. Peace, water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. But is we live, though? Is we like all the way live though? Yo-